Hello, I'm Geraldine Doog, and I welcome you to the 2013 Boyer Lectures. For over half a century, the ABC's premier lecture series has featured prominent Australians with their take on important themes and issues of the day. Chief Justices, scientists, writers, philosophers and Prime Ministers-to-be, all part of an astonishing roll call. And in this 55th year, a first, a serving Governor-General, Her Excellency the Honourable Quentin Bryce, ACCVO, who was sworn in as Australia's 25th Governor-General in September 2008. That capped an extraordinary life journey, which all began modestly enough in the dry heart of Queensland, in a very different Australia. In the decades that followed, Quentin Bryce was to become a major figure in the push for social change, especially for the rights of women and children. Her service to human rights was recognised with an Order of Australia in 1988 and a Companion of the Order of Australia, an AC, in 2003. In her final months as Governor-General, Quentin Bryce has penned a very personal sketch of her life and work. She's titled her lecture series... Back to Grassroots. But it's not a nostalgic or a sentimental journey, rather a powerful testimony of how the personal can be extraordinarily political. I hope you'll stay with us for the next four weeks for what will be a very special occasion. Fellow Australians, as I get older and see our children caring for their families, working in their careers, and watch our grandchildren developing... I think more and more about the sort of life and nation we are delivering to them. And as I come to the end of my term as Governor-General, I'm grateful for the opportunity in this Boyer Lecture Series to share some of those thoughts with you. Growing up in the dry heart of Western Queensland in the 1940s meant that I was a kid from the bush. It's sheep and cattle country out there, And it goes on forever. The grey-brown soils are the eroded remnants of a vast inland sea. Fine arteries sculpt the flat landscape, carrying scarce water and thirsting for rain. Huge expanses of Mitchell grass nourish what was then a thriving wool industry. Only stands of Gidgee interrupt a penetrating, mesmerising horizon. At the end of the day, I'd often visit my father at his work. I'd sit in his office, soaking up his world, imbibing the smell of lanolin. Over the grind and roar of machinery, I'd listen to him, talk to the men who worked with him. My dad was manager of the district wool scour. He was a great storyteller and chatted easily with all sorts of people. The big, faraway world was filtered to me through books, letters, radio and a steady flow of conversation. Naturally, I was curious about what lay beyond our little town. I learned later that women then made up only 22% of the Australian workforce and only 3% of those were married. The basic female wage was 75% of the male wage. There were two women in the federal parliament. This was the way it was. Leading feminists of the time, like Jessie Street, Bessie Rishbeth, Muriel Matters, 
were hailing a coming of age for women in the post-war years. But few of us really had any idea that women's participation in Australian life would change so dramatically across the next five decades. I feel so lucky to have been part of them. I found during my term that I've often gone back to my earlier working life and experiences, the people I've learned from along the way, to make sense of what I see now. Each Governor-General gathers a multitude of insights from across Australian life. We see the most courageous, compassionate and resilient of human effort, and wherever we go, a deep fondness for our country. So much of this role is about listening to people's stories and doing my best to echo them around the nation. Personal stories of struggle and overcoming, the ideas and questions and provocations they put in front of us, how they help our understanding of human disadvantage and suffering and our formal recognition of human rights. Real-life stories that once heard we can never walk away from. These lectures are essentially about those stories. More precisely, the critical part stories and their telling play in building neighbourhoods, in practising good leadership and citizenship, and participating in a democracy. As teenagers at a girls' boarding school in the mid-50s, on a Sunday afternoon, my friends and I would lie around on rugs under huge camphor laurel trees, reading much-loved books about the World War II nurses. Our favourite was White Cooley's, stories of Betty Jeffries, Vivian Bullwinkle, and poring over newspaper clippings of the female athletes we idolised. It was around the time of the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, the first ever to be held in the Southern Hemisphere. Television had arrived. Melbourne was a long way from our school and dormitories in Outer Bayside, Brisbane, but that did nothing to quell our excitement and feeling of being right there with the athletes. They were Australia's homegrown heroes competing on home soil. Betty Cuthbert, Shirley Strickland, Norma Croker, Fleur Mellor, Marlene Matthews, Norma Thrower. The press officially crowned 18-year-old Cuthbert the golden girl of the games. She even got the blonde bombshell that I believe she found embarrassing. No matter the colour of their hair, they were all golden girls to us. Surely we loved to see them win. That goal-studded four-by-100-metre relay was a heart and nation-stopper. These were gutsy young women with extraordinary talent and drive. We admired their superbly fit bodies and minds. We admired what they'd achieved as individuals and for our country. They were modern, successful women, not much older than us, and we wanted to be just like them. I wasn't much of an athlete myself, though I gave most things a go. Anyhow, it wasn't about that. It was how they moved us to believe in ourselves and believe we could do things that mattered. Perhaps we were ripe for it too, given the environment we were in. Morton Bay College had a role of 150 or so. I was one of only six girls in years 11 and 12, 
and the first from my school to go to university. Mrs Drew, our headmistress, was a no-nonsense sort of woman, well-educated, pragmatic, had our measure. She'd been widowed young and had two children of her own to raise. As seniors, we were expected to pull our weight, earn others' respect, much like the older ones in a family must. There wasn't a thing we were led to believe we couldn't do, provided we were prepared to put the effort in. There was never a hint that being a girl was a limitation we had to learn to live with. I'd come from Ilfracombe, a country town around 1,200 kilometres northwest of Brisbane, just a skip from Longreach where Qantas began. My parents and I and three sisters lived on the edge of town. I guess there were three or four hundred people in all, including the district. The scour that Dad managed was the biggest employer in the Shire during those years. My mother had trained and worked as a teacher. When children arrived, she applied her considerable skill and enthusiasm to teaching us at home in our kindergarten and lower primary years. My parents were great listeners and welcomers. We often had people at our home. There was always plenty of conversation. Anything from the new Ilfracombe Dam to Mr Menzies' latest broadcast and the warming ritual around cups of tea and whatever was just out of the oven. As a child, I loved to be included. It was fascinating and fun. But even then, I could see there were deeper layers to it. These people were our friends, our neighbours, shopkeepers, farmers, shire councillors, my parents' colleagues, the matron of the hospital. In a small town, everyone pretty well knows everyone. You feel very strongly that you're part of something together. In boom times and tough times, the spoils and sacrifices are shared. When individual lives are touched by joy or loss, the whole neighbourhood feels it. These are powerful human connections. When families needed help, when things in the town needed doing, it happened without fuss. People knew what to do and together they got on and did it. The gentle, old-fashioned word for it is neighbourliness. I saw people help and help others to make things happen. They showed us what we're capable of and got the willing ones moving. And I've seen it in recent years too during some of the most devastating natural disasters this country has ever faced. The Victorian bushfires, the families of Kinglake, Whittlesea, looking out for one another, checking on neighbours' homes as fires roared and burned through whole communities. The Brisbane Mud Army, thousands of volunteers armed with gumboots and shovels, scraping the seething dregs of floodwaters from people's homes and businesses. The barbecue I hosted in Ingham as floods receded, people turning up exhausted, covered in mud, grateful for a sausage, some time out, a chat, a hug. The woman who collected her emergency flood relief money and walked straight across the road and gave it to the bushfire appeal. Those poor things are doing it much tougher than us, she told me. We just have to clean up. They've lost everything. We were living in Brisbane when my mother took up a position as a special education teacher, 
working with young people with severe disabilities. Sometimes I'd help out at the centre. I'd seen my mother do so many things, but I hadn't seen her in a role like this one. With her ability and knowledge as an educator and her compassion as a mother and carer, she worked with these children and their families to transform their lives. She believed that every child deserves the best opportunity to learn, to be valued and to make a contribution. She was able to do that for those children and she did it for us too. When I look back, I feel enormously proud of her and grateful for the educational opportunities my parents gave my sisters and me. They believed that a good education would best equip us in the lives we chose to lead. It wasn't until my university years that I discovered there were women and girls who'd been told they weren't as capable or as important or as worthy as their brothers, husbands, sons and fathers. This was a long way from how I'd imagined the world to be and I couldn't reconcile it with my own limited experience of life. I needed to know what it was about. In the early 70s, when I first heard the expression the personal is political, it instantly made sense to me. Our personal lives and histories must surely influence our responses to the broader world. As a young mother and lawyer, it seemed incongruous to me that the issues and experiences central to my life, children, mothering, working, wouldn't also be the ones that I would pursue professionally. There were certainly plenty of women and children whose interests were being totally ignored or poorly served. To me, the law was a powerful means of changing that. So my work went where these issues took me. And I found myself doing what I'd seen my parents do, self-organise, community organise. A group of local young mums got together. We started things in the neighbourhood for our kids. Art classes, tennis games, kindergarten, preschool, endless fundraising. We all needed a hand with our childcare too. So with the help of a local church, we set up our own program and ran it in the hall. We knew who would help out, but we also realised that there's never any shortage of people ready to caution against the doing of anything for fear that something might happen. Both keen on a big family, Michael and I went on to have five children. I had no idea how tough parenting could be. At one stage, we had five under seven. We had busy jobs and I felt as though there was never enough time to do anything well. I would churn through days and nights on too little sleep just to get it all done. I'd find myself on the bedroom floor in the early hours, surrounded by a mess of work papers, trying to throw together a costume for the preschool concert, wondering if I could get away with buying instead of making a cake for the kindy store, and remembering the roast I'd left to scorch in the oven. I forced myself to make my bed as soon as I got up so I wasn't tempted to get back in. From time to time, fatigue would overwhelm me and I'd fall into a heap. There were tough times when I felt I just wouldn't make it. Without grandparents and neighbours and friends, perhaps I wouldn't have. 
I was tutoring in law at the University of Queensland and in the evenings I taught legal studies at TAFE. My students there, mostly mature age, worked in areas of social deprivation. I'd studied a couple of years of social work before moving into law. I learned so much from them about the complexities of poverty, drug and alcohol addiction, generational violence, isolation and exclusion, consequences to children and families, and the hands-on, grassroots work they were doing in the community to bring about social awareness and change. From time to time, they get me involved. And as I did, I paid attention to how people from diverse disciplines and backgrounds made things happen, how they organised themselves to deal with seemingly impenetrable issues, how they advocated their positions. It was exhilarating and inspiring to work with them. These were individuals, generous givers, exceptional thinkers and doers who committed their professional lives to tackling serious disadvantage. No problem could ever be considered too big or too hard. They applied themselves to some of society's most noble and difficult undertakings. Among them, Father Wally Deathlefts, Catholic priest and prison chaplain in south-east Queensland. Wally co-founded an emergency shelter for young and homeless people. He'd also founded and coordinated the Justice for Juveniles group and later the Youth Advocacy Centre in Brisbane. I was privileged to work with him in the mid-70s towards reform of the Children's Services Act and a decade later when he sat on the National Burdekin Inquiry into youth homelessness. I was then Queensland Director of the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. The Burdekin Report was confronting and influential. It recorded the raw, agonising and horrific stories of homeless youth and the extreme demands on community workers on call around the clock to absorb some of their pain. It stirred up politicians, welfare agencies and community leaders to get more money for delivering services to these young ones. I recognise the value of people who are prepared to commit to the long, hard haul. Around the same time, I joined a group of activists. Yes, that's what we were. The Association for the Welfare of Children in Hospital. I was first national president in 1978. Our youngest son, Tom, had aplastic anemia in his infant years. Michael and I spent long, harrowing days and nights at the Royal Children's in Brisbane. The personal was political. The association's cause was founded in the observations of social worker James Robertson of the Tavistock Clinic in Britain in the early 50s. He was concerned with the distress and withdrawal that very young children experienced when separated from their mothers during a stay in hospital. Robertson's observations were all too familiar and much-needed evidence for our campaign. Our first priority was to open up visiting hours for parents and siblings, something we take for granted now, but only a generation ago it was a radical notion. We were a sophisticated and successful pressure group, 
But at the same time, we were seen by many in the medical establishment as contentious, threatening and disruptive. The support of paediatricians was crucial, and we got it. The 70s was a critical decade of advocacy for children and young people, internationally, in education, in law, in relationships and attitudes. Patriarchal authoritarian approaches to childcare and development were challenged. At the end of the 80s, the United Nations adopted the Convention on the Rights of the Child and in 1990 it was ratified by our government. This was the first international instrument to incorporate the full range of human rights, civil, cultural, economic, political and social rights, founded on respect for the dignity and worth of each individual. World leaders recognised that children have human rights too and that they deserve special care and protection. While this way of thinking is woven into our fabric now, it was sadly revolutionary then. Our progress since, we can be proud of. The establishment in 1993 of the National Childcare Accreditation Council that I led in its early years was a welcome assurance to many Australian parents. Until then, they had no way of properly assessing whether their children were receiving good quality care. The late 60s also brought feminism's second wave. The marriage bar was lifted from women's employment in the Australian Public Service in 1966. Many women were questioning their traditional domestic roles and revisiting missed opportunities. Prime Minister Whitlam's It's Time campaign roused women to seize the offering of free tertiary education and revive their prospects in the workplace. No-fault divorce became law. 1975 was declared by the UN International Women's Year. It was a universal first and it flagged the decade for women to follow. In response, Prime Minister Fraser established the Office of Women's Affairs and later in 1978 the National Women's Advisory Council to encourage better communication between federal government and Australian women. Chaired by prominent feminist Dame Beryl Beaurepaire, this committee was an exemplar of rigorous research, policy development and women's leadership. It was the work I'd done in children's issues that got me a seat at the table with these highly respected, competent women. In 1983, I became convener. The council was briefed to look specifically at women with special needs our advice to government would be soundly evidence-based and I'm proud of the work we did for our path-breaking reports, Migrant Women Speak, Financial Arrangements Within Families, My Child Was Born Disabled. We consulted hundreds of women around the country, in factories and shops, in their homes, on riverbanks, in the bush. For many, this was the first time their opinions had ever been called for it was heartrending and enabling. They were the barometers of women's inequality, frustrations and aspirations. It was obvious to all of us that the solutions to systemic prejudice and discrimination would come from women themselves. Their voices, our voices, 
needed to be heard. This was certainly true following the enactment of federal sex discrimination and affirmative action legislation in the mid-80s. The Women's Information Service gave women in Queensland information about Commonwealth laws, policies and programs. As coordinator, I ran the shopfront in the city. I spoke to women, some desperate, some victims of violence, who walked in off the street. I travelled throughout the state, running seminars, discussion sessions. Our focus was on empowering women with facts and evidence. While many women seized the opportunity to learn about their rights and the services available to them, there was considerable resistance from those who felt the viability of their businesses threatened or that women were happy enough without all these new laws. Like no other forum, these public meetings forced me to stand firm, listen carefully and argue rationally and calmly. In what were sometimes intimidating exchanges, my inspiration and resolve came from the women who courageously got to their feet and broke their troubled silences in front of neighbours and strangers, some of whom were quick to judge them harshly. I felt a serious responsibility to ensure that the concerns of women in cities, regions and the country were accurately recorded and presented as compelling testimony to decision-makers in government. What these women said mattered at last, and I discovered that sometimes what I said mattered too. During my term as Sex Discrimination Commissioner, I was involved in a couple of matters that were very significant to my understanding of the journey from grassroots activism to international human rights recognition. I was a member of Australia's delegation to the UN Commission on Human Rights. I was in Geneva in 1989 for the last stages of the debate that led to the adoption of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Australia was a major contributor through the 70s and 80s, I had worked in research and advocacy in children's rights. I was to deliver a part of Australia's submission to the Commission. When my light flashed green, I gripped my notes, swallowed my nerves and spoke. It was a breathtaking seminal moment for me. Somehow a powerful distillation of two decades of action and investigation on the ground about matters close and dear to me had made its way to the United Nations. What had been so personal was now very much political. I'd also been an observer on the Australian delegation to the expert body overseeing the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Its short title, CEDAW. Australia's Justice Elizabeth Evatt served as a member and later as chair. What remarkable intellect, strategic thinking and work ethic she demonstrated. A fine example to me in my small research and reporting role. Much has been written about how personal witnessing is critical to formulating rights protection as people come forward to tell their stories before tribunals and national inquiries, the UN included. Personal experience becomes a platform for action and social change. For women of developed nations, 
Our progress towards gender equality in the last 30 years is notable. Women of developing nations are decades behind in so many respects. Across all nations and all sectors, women share in every sense a lack of recognition of their equal worth and their equal capacity to contribute to a just, peaceful and prosperous society. In my next lecture, I will talk more about women's leadership in the context of the ongoing global campaign to eliminate violence against women, the central role of storytelling in leadership and action, and the work of women here and around the world offering a model of leadership that deserves serious attention. Her Excellency the Honourable Quentin Bryce, Governor-General of the Commonwealth of Australia, with the first in her Boyer Lecture Series. I'm Geraldine Doog. I do hope you can join us again next week for Lecture 2, Watching the Women.